0: hi and welcome to axelbank reports history and today conversations with america's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now i'm evan axelbank and today we're going to speak with philip dray the author of a lynching at port jervis race and reckoning in the gilded age he's written a half dozen books on race and sociology in different eras of american history He also teaches and has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Dre. Thanks for having me. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support. In keeping the show going, go to patreon.com slash Axelbank History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Our show has covered lots of lynchings and what the practice says about the history of race and justice in America. More often than not, they were in the South or in major American cities. But in this case, Philip Dre's book takes the familiar trope of a black man who's accused of sexually assaulting a white woman, is chased down by a mob and tortured, and turns it in a bit of a different direction. This one happened in the North in 1892 in a town that is at the intersection of new york new jersey and pennsylvania so philip why do northerners have to come to grips with the ugly racial history that took place on their territory even though slavery technically died out generations before it did in the south
1: uh uh, well first of all of course um parts of the north including new york state were actually uh large slave societies uh, in the 18th century. Uh, So even though slavery formally ended in 1827 in New York State, uh, there was a strong legacy of it, particularly in the Hudson Valley, where Port Jervis is located. Um, So there was always a kind of, that kind of sense in the North of of the idea that, you know, that the South was kind of the, the, the former confederate confederacy particularly after the civil war was the home of this kind of brutal racial violence exclusively uh, was a sort of comforting trope for the North. And so an incident like that at Port Jervis in 1892 kind of broke that spell a little bit, uh, particularly when Port Jervis was unable to bring the perpetrators of the lynching to justice. So it turned out to be very much a kind of Southern style lynching Uh, in terms of its aftermath as well.
0: And why do Northerners have to come to grips with the idea that this was happening in their territory?
1: Well, I think it's something we're still, the country is still learning. um, You know, the idea that this type of racial violence is not exclusive to any one particular part of the country, but occurs as we know now in Minneapolis, I'm from Minneapolis originally, uh, Minneapolis, Duluth, Minnesota, Ohio, you know, the NAACP started, um, in 1908, 1909, after, uh, an outrageous, uh, rioting and lynching in Springfield, Illinois, which was Lincoln's hometown. Illinois was considered a Northern state. Um, and it was that type of what seemed like a, a wrongful juxtaposition in a way of that kind of incident occurring in a place that quote, it shouldn't be occurring. Uh, that rattled people and brought about the beginning, the idea of activists deciding that what was needed was a a return to the biracial energies of the abolition movement. That was the NAACP. But I think you see it even today. I think when these incidents occur in places where, whether it's a Northern suburb or uh, at this point, we're accustomed to incidents of police killings, or for instance, shootings, Happening really anywhere in the United States. And so I think that has what I think at the time of the Port Jervis incident, what came as kind of a surprise or a shock, I think at this point, Americans have grown accustomed to.
0: You are an expert in the history of lynchings, given you wrote a uh, what is considered a landmark book on the subject, At the Hands of Persons Unknown, The Lynching of Black America. So explain your argument that I'm sure runs through a few of your books that concerns um, the function of or the reason for such large crowds carrying out what they see as justice. How did these violent crowds offer both a judgment of the accused and also protection for themselves. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, the,
1: of course, the impulse for lynching came from uh, a number of of uh, sources. Um, there was, of course, in the nineteenth century, overall a kind of a sense that the justice system was too slow, too methodical, not addressing certain types of crimes that were beyond the court's ability to reckon with. There was also, of course, other pressures in the South, uh, for instance, on whites who felt anxious about the new mobility of the freed people, uh, black people moving about the South in ways they never had before, advancing in society. There were 2,000 elected Black officials uh, in America in in Reconstruction. Um, At The same time you had the new independence and freedom of white women who were leaving the farm and the family home to work in textile mills, move to the city, and so on. So it made for very, the South Society was sort of combustible in a certain way. New technology was available. and so this created a kind of sexual anxiety, a sense of white uh, white fr- fragility for, in a sense, which in a way is what links these crimes from the 19th century to our own time. Many of this, these fears, this white anxiety is still with us. But to answer your question about lynch mobs, that they often started in different ways. There were some that were very spontaneous. Other lynchings were plotted out. Um, and they were executions that were planned by aggrieved whites. Uh, others were, I said, more happened just on the spur of the moment. Once they began, the local police and sheriffs were often unable to tamp down the crowd. Some wound up surrendering prisoners to a demanding
0: mob. Um, and this community protected them, right, from, from, from facing consequences for what they did.
1: Right. Well, that was always the. That was the thing about lynching. Of course, was that it was a way. It was meant to be, a. It meant to seek a kind of oblivion, uh, and be anonymous. Hence, the coroner's verdict in most southern lynchings at the ha- death at the hands of persons unknown. Obviously, this was a. It was a euphemism. Uh, everybody knew who had been involved, but no one was wanted to take credit for it. Of course, I'd be blamed. And the idea was that this was a kind of communal affirmation of white dominance. And that verdict, that euphemism, was consistently used throughout the South.
0: Where does 1892 fit? This is the the year that the lynching at Port Jervis happened. Where does 1892 fit into the history of lynchings across the United States? You say they were increasing at around this time, and as we know, Jim Crow was also cementing itself in American life. So, how did the rise of lynchings fit into the rise of Jim Crow during the, se- the setting of your book in 1892?
1: Well, I said, it, I think it was, as we know, that the, the latter couple of decades of the 19th century are what are known as the, the famous Rayford Logan, a famous black historian, called the, the nadir of the African American experience in this country. Uh, it was a time when all the advances of Reconstruction were being rolled back voting uh, equal rights in every sense. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 had been gutted by the Supreme Court. Uh, and, of course, in 1896, you had Plessy v. Ferguson, which made Jim Crow segregation the law of the land. Mississippi and other southern states were busy passing all kinds of nefarious anti-voting laws aimed at voters. Um, so lynching at that time was also peaking the South. And 1892 actually was the highest number of recorded lynchings. There were 161 recorded lynchings of Black Americans in 1892, which basically is one every other day. Uh, Newspapers were never without news of a lynching, some phase of a lynching at that time.
0: One of the book reviews for your book, which I took a look at, says that of the 1,134 lynchings of black people in the United States between 1882 and 1899, this is the only one that took place in New York State. How many, uh, how many others occurred in the North? And what has happened to the history of those lynchings in the North?
1: There were other recorded lynchings. Uh, for instance, New York had had uh, I think there were four lynchings in New York: one in 1863, one in the 1870s uh, on Long Island, and then one in 1913, I believe, in Manhattan. Uh, they lynchings recorded lynchings of, especially of Black Americans, in the North were statistically not that common at all during this period. Uh, you know, a lot of lynchings occurred of cattle rustlers and that sort of thing out in Ohio and Montana and. Uh, Indiana, perhaps. Uh, But the the lynching of Black people, though it occurred, was not nearly as, I mean, compared to the Southern statistics of recorded lynchings. And of course, remember that whenever we talk about lynchings, it's always assumed that there are many that were never known, never recorded and exist. If they're known at all, it's usually through oral history. But the numbers were from the South were absolutely staggering in in that period, as you just cited. Uh, more than a thousand in that period of 1882 to 1899 so by by comparison the number that's why the the sense of shock in say New York City that in a small village only 65 miles away Port Jervis there had been a basically a southern lynching in 1892 was something that caught people's attention.
0: What were your sources for writing this story? Um, obviously you've researched dozens of lynchings uh, where are if there are any papers uh, related to this particular one where did you find them? Um, what did those documents consist of um, and how long did it take you to piece all this together there is only uh, in, in terms of a legal document there only
1: is the news accounts, you know, in the, in the 19th century uh, reporters often transcribed uh, word for word legal proceedings. Um, and so you have the coroner's inquest into the Robert Lewis lynching in Port Jervis, which of course you're going, it's not like a transcript which no longer exists if it ever did, but rather a news account of it. So that's a very strong source. Also the local, uh, Press coverage was pretty extensive, not because it was a news story that uh, uh, it um, appealed to reporters not from just Port Jervis and the New York region, but also from the entire country. So there was a lot written about it. Unfortunately, this particular incident occurred a generation before groups like the NAACP became practiced at sending investigators into the black community to get that community's perspective on what had occurred. So all we have are accounts from the white press.
0: Yeah, one of the things you say is that the white press and the black press covered lynchings differently and that there was a rivalry between them. Um, what, What do we have on this particular one in terms of the two different kind of parallel streams of media? And unfortunately, we don't have really, the black press at the time,
1: Except for someone like Ida B. Wells had been known to personally look into the causes of lynchings and, and to get the Black point of view. But it was not really yet the practice. There was no yet really like a national Black organization, Black-run organization, that was sponsoring that kind of investigation of lynchings. For one thing, it was, would be very dangerous. So, at the time of Port Jervis, at least, you did not, it's really, that is a frustrating thing for the historian is that there isn't really black input. Only you could, you have to kind of read the tea leaves a bit in terms of the white reportage of how the black community responded. We know that they were very angry about the way in which Robert Lewis had been treated, and not only that he had been lynched, but indeed that even his the way his family, the way the mourning, his funeral was being handled, and so on, and one can assume that they were traumatized because the black community was small in Port Jervis. Uh, it's a very small town where, of course, black citizens would have had to have walked by the lynching site maybe every other day. So, in that sense, you're you're more or less to just sort of, you can sort of you try to gain some insight, but you don't have the kind of direct account that would come much later in the 1920s, for instance. Uh,
0: As you talk about going through these papers, I am curious. I just interviewed an author who wrote a book, a biography on Walter White, um, who was um, someone who appeared white, although he had African-American roots, and went through the South and investigated different lynchings by sort of cozying up to white folks who... Knew what happened, right? Um, and this author said that he cried every day while he was writing his book on Walter White and going through the mm-hmm. sources. What was it like for you emotionally to go through the different sources that describe not only this particular incident but other lynchings across uh, America?
1: Well, I'll tell you. When I wrote my first book about lynching, um, it was I, I wrote about many more lynchings it, because it was a book about the tr- sort of trajectory of this sort of institutionalized pogrom I found the only thing that kept sort of allowed some balance was that I also was writing about the crusade against lynching and so there was it was very difficult of course to describe these incidents but what helped me was that then there were the story of the Walter Whites of the world James Weldon Johnson Ida B Wells Eleanor Roosevelt so that tempered it a bit. But I can understand why someone writing about Walter White, I mean, Walter White was a fascinating character. He, as you say, he would go into Southern towns and try to ferret out what had occurred using the fact that he could pose as a white man. But occasionally that that disguise failed him. And more than once he was chased, he had to run, really run for it uh, because someone found out that he was you know posing basically and in a place like arkansas or wherever it might be that was a very a very uh provocative thing to do so walter white was someone very courageous and did put himself on the line and tried to he knew the value of that kind of investigation
0: if it's possible to separate port jervis from the lynching, um, take us there in 1892. What was it like? What is it known for? Um, it's in what is today considered, I mean, I guess back then probably too, the Delaware water gap. Um, Mm -hmm. it's a place that I've driven through on the highway many times on my way to Ithaca to go to college. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, it's sort of on the way towards Binghamton if you're going that way and Mm -hmm. headed North. Um, what was it like in 1892? What was it known for and how did its geography shape Port Jervis? Well, the port—the name
1: Port Jervis actually re- refers to the canal. There was the Delaware and Hudson Canal, which was an anthracite coal canal that came from Pennsylvania up through Port Jervis all the way up to Kingston, New York. And then the barges of coal were floated down the river to New York City. This One of those incredible kind of 18th, 19th, early 19th century technological projects that seem amazing in a way to us, but digging this canal all this way. But Port Jervis... Today, the canal, there's a Canal Street in Port Jervis, which was the canal at that time. Um, also, it was right on the Delaware and the Never Sink Rivers, right at the confluence. It actually is a very scenic place. It also was the home of the repair shops of the Erie Railroad. Uh, and so it was a, a railroad hub, kind of, and a place. One of It's still the last stop on the New Jersey Transit. At the time, it was sort of thought of as the last Station before you went west from New York, basically. Um, but it was a, a very industrious city. It bought itself. It was the very progressive in a way. It had, technologically at least, it had the first electric street lights in Orange County. Uh, it was known for its glass manufacture, um, and there were many silk mills. And it was it was a kind of a, a a rough and tumble town to a certain extent because of the railroad. There was a kind of a Bad man's row along the tracks near the river, and then of course the uptown area, which is still very nice with that, with the larger homes uh Stephen Crane, the famous author, his family lived there uh and he would later write actually a story about the Robert was lynching but it so it was a town a very typical kind of late victorian era town of of course the uptown sort of like women's temperance groups and the garden clubs, and then downtown, the kind of rough-hewn railroad workers and so on. But it was a village of about 10,000, and I think it had a kind of, at that time, I think it saw itself as a sort of up-and-coming modern burg. It would
0: eventually become officially a city. At that time, it was still a village. What was the split like between white and Black residents? How many whites, how many Blacks were there? Um, Did they generally get along? And what was Black life? Like there
1: it was a very small black community, only about two percent, so of the nine or ten thousand residents total there were maybe two hundred uh, African Americans in the in the town for many years they had lived the black community had largely lived out of the town itself this was very common in the Hudson Valley at the time and maybe elsewhere uh, for like an African American settlement to be up out of the town a little bit um, and Maybe two or three miles walk into the main part of town. Um, that's what occurred in Port Jervis. Uh, at some point, the whites in town decided that it was harmful to the reservoir to have black people living, kind of camping out on the shores of it, and so it helped they forced them to relocate. Um, so at that time, 1892, African Americans were beginning to move more closer into town. They worked generally in uh, as gardeners, as uh, maids, cooks, uh, doing agricultural work, um, as teamsters, and so on. The one, again, because we only we rely so heavily on the white press, uh, the impression you get is that aside from African Americans in the town being admired for their athletic prowess, they were known for having a champion bas- uh, baseball team, uh, and also being talented at singing. They're, they're performances at singing in the local opera house were very popular however many of the much of the newspaper coverage seemed to delight in kind of a sort of lampooning their behavior in other words that they were making fun of their their infidelities and petty crimes and uh when uh, you know someone had a moonshine still or in other words there was this kind of prose written about often that the the articles would Use what you know, kind of a uh, what they thought to be a kind of black jargon to depict you're familiar with this uh, kind of an uncle Remus sort of um, so that was a kind of a patronizing condescending view uh, there, but it, I should say though there, there was no evidence really of like flagrant racial violence in the town. Hmm. I mean, that's what made the lynching uh, all the more shocking.
0: Have you been able to identify common factors in towns that had lynchings beyond just the mere presence of black residents and the fact that they were in a country that had lynchings? It's kind of hard to say
1: because they happened they were so ubiquitous, of course, especially in the south at that time. Um, sometimes it almost seemed to come down to who. If there were strong-willed white people who were capable of sort of assuming leadership of such a mob, sort of such a group, or like becoming the kind of perpetrators who would be the ringleaders of a mob. Um other than that, it's hard to say. It was like any of those kind of things that are any of that sort of human behavior that is just sort of difficult, uh it's hard to put your finger on one. I, I can sort of describe the underlying sources of anxiety, but yeah. what exactly would trigger? Uh, it could be anything. You know, as as the anti-lynching crusaders would always point out, the reasons for a lynching were very could be were enormously varied, from someone complaining about their wages or refusing to give way on the street to accusations of a sexual assault. Um, And so on, any kind of transgression or perceived crime could be, could justify the uh, the actions of a mob. Uh,
0: Here we are taping June 3rd, uh, 2022, almost on the precise 130th anniversary of the June 2nd, 1892 lynching. Um, June 2nd is my birthday, by the way. I guess I just just have to say that, right? Because it's the same day. Um what was uh we made it we made it to the day itself uh, June second eighteen ninety two What was the weather uh that day? Uh, what would we have seen if we woke up and went down to the local general store for a quick errand that day?
1: I understand it was a it was a warm late spring day um and a bit muggy perhaps uh, People were swimming in the river, the Sink River. Uh, which is where the alleged sexual assault took place. And that's where the young woman, Lena McMahon, uh, and her white boyfriend, uh, Philip Foley, had gone. They were there that day, and there were young men swimming, both near them and who arrived after. Uh, so it was a warm day, and I think, uh, you know, it was uh, It was a Thursday. Uh, and I. other than that, I don't really know if the weather, of course, one infamous part of the story is that immediately after the lynching, a torrential rainstorm broke out, uh, which it may have had an effect of squelching. You know, often lynchings resulted in the lynch mob then looking for other victims or going on to wreak havoc generally in a black community. And in one sense, this sudden thunderstorm may have stopped that from occurring. But um,
0: So who was Lena McMahon? Um. who was her lover, um, and how, on this day, how does she find herself in the middle of this firestorm that would turn into a lynching?
1: Well, of course, part of the problem with answering that is that we don't fully know the, the details of what brought the lynching on. I can tell you that Lena McMahon was a young woman, 22 years old. Uh, she'd grown up in the town, and she ran a sweet shop that her mother had once operated, uh, in an area near the Never Sink River, uh, Philip Foley, her, her suitor was an older man, uh, an out of town insurance salesman, and apparently something of a cad. Um, something by, of a what? A cad, caddish man, someone, a, a cad known as someone yeah. who was like a womanizer. Uh, okay. and her parents took a dislike to him and, There was a breakdown in her family, the parents uh, letting her know that they didn't want her to see him anymore. She and Foley appeared to have been in love with each other. And at the the day or two before the lynching, she and her mother fell out and Lena left the house, stormed out. The mother assaulted her violently and Lena had to go get her, her lip patched up at a pharmacy. Uh... After that, it gets a little mysterious. She left town, then she came back. Uh, she was plotting to, she wanted to get her belongings from her parents' house so she could run away. Um, meanwhile, uh, Foley was with her at the Riverside and left at one point to go into the town to see about getting her, her goods. At that point, she claimed to have been assaulted by a light-skinned black man. and. From there, the story kind of unravels.
0: But the story is weird at first because it's almost like this guy is sort of coercing this Robert Lewis to go for it, he says. Um, well, it's just a very convoluted story. And I, I feel like maybe a lot of lynchings are like this because um, there's such an effort to protect those involved. You mean, you mean the white man, the white
1: boyfriend was incurred. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Well, that was something that was part. That was an accusation that was made against both. Yeah. Um, of course, again, you get into it gets into gets confusing because there are many contradictory observations about what actually occurred. But it is possible that the trouble began with Lena herself, who was trying to get out of town and get away from Port Jervis, and that she that theory is that basically she and Foley cooked up an idea that they would stage this attack on her in some way. Um, and that that would then, um, sort of, I don't know what she had in mind, except to sort of shunt some of the, the problem of her own difficulties with her family into this idea that she had been victimized by an attack. Um, And that then she would somehow then either get back into the good graces of her family or be allowed to go on her way. Uh, And then what happened is that this charade blew up in that then Robert Lewis, who may have been enlisted to take part in this, was actually then blamed by the town for the literal assault on her. Now again, this is all this is very speculative. We don't really know if that's what happened, but that was one of the theories.
0: So how does the so how does the crowd start to gather uh how, how do they settle on robert lewis how does word of this alleged assault i don't want to use the word alleged but how does how do the the forces start to coalesce here and how do they start to focus on robert lewis again
1: i think you'd have to i mean you would have to call it an alleged assault because yeah there were young boys in the area of the assault who claimed to have seen him there robert lewis and one boy even claimed to have seen Robert Lewis attack Lena. Now Lena never named Robert Lewis. She claimed it was an unknown person, a man she didn't recognize. And so, it was from the testimony of these other young boys that it had been Robert Lewis, who was a well-known figure in the town. He drove the wagon for the local a local hotel. And so, very quickly, then uh, a group of whites. Um, White young white men of the neighborhood who knew Lena gathered, began discussing who might have been responsible, and it very quickly came to them that Robert Lewis had been named by one of the so-called witnesses. Uh, he was no—he was spotted on the canal path heading north, and uh, the posse went off in that direction basically. Um, It's a very odd way. They caught him. He was riding on a canal boat, which would have been a very strange way to try to run away since a canal boat is pulled by mules, goes about two miles an hour. Um, But he was caught and brought back into the town. The posse attempted to turn him over to the police, but a mob had already formed at the jail and intercepted the posse, took Robert Lewis away, and that's how the lynching commenced. The
0: the headline is Southern methods outdone in the yes. newspaper. Um, I don't know how much detail you want to give. It's pretty painful uh, just, you know, it is important though to explain it, I guess, in some way, what did they do to him? He was, he was led
1: uh, up a hill, a few blocks. I think there was a vague idea that of course a lynch mob, as you know, you know, we all saw, in, on January sixth, recently, we all saw what a mob looks like in action. It's a kind of medieval combat with the police. Uh, very much, I can imagine that's kind of what looked like it looked like at Port Jervis, basically, as the very scant police force tried to free him from the mob. It was completely futile. Um, there was an idea though that they would take him to be confronted by Lena McMahon, who lived up the hill and a ways away and they headed in that direction. Uh, but on the way there, after they'd gone a few blocks, and this was very typical of the way rumors flew during Southern lynchings as well, that a rumor came that she had already, she had died, basically, that her injuries from this assault had proven fatal. And at that moment, the mob just, of course, went went over the top and said, that's it. We're going no further. Uh, they chose a tree along Main Street, East Main Street in Port Jervis, uh, and commenced to hang Robert Lewis. There were some good Samaritans there. Stephen Crane's older brother, a judge, was among them, some of the police. But they, those people were themselves brutalized by the mob and shoved away. Uh, and so Robert Lewis was hanged hang to death.
0: How did that headline, Southern Methods Outdone, cut so deep into the Northern psyche? Well, because
1: they, I think the, the North at that time, it, the North, of course, had its own problems, and but it considered that what was happening in the South was a sort of a, barbar, a barbaric uh, scourge of lynching, uh, and that I think there was a kind of smugness on the part of the North that while those things would happen occasionally, it was nothing compared to what a Southern lynching looked like and I think particularly at that time, because lynchings were so much in the news, um, you know, it's just like today with, with mass shootings, there's something that happens all the time. And so when one happens, one's inclined to say, oh, it, it resembles this or that, or it's part of this, it's happening here now, too. And I think that's what it was. And particularly when, of course, Northern jurists tried to assure people and said, well, Unlike the South, of course, they won't get away with that here. We will see, we'll see that justice is done. But again, the same, exact same thing happened. Neighbors were afraid to testify against neighbors. People were afraid of their barn being set on fire or what have you. And eventually the inquest and two grand juries led really to no one being held accountable.
0: I do want to ask about the justice system in in the North. Was it reliable in other ways? At this time uh, in the 1890s, um, or were lynchings a soft spot in it? I can't speak
1: too authoritatively about the entire justice system. I can tell you that the prevalence of lynching made enough jurists throughout the country concerned about what it was about the justice system that was failing to assuage people's concerns, basically. In other words, why was this happening? Why were people so impatient with due process? And a lot of notable jurists at Harvard Law School and et cetera around the country did set their minds to trying to figure out ways how can we, maybe we should make improvements. So, for instance, they discussed a number of different things like getting rid of appeals or introducing castration as a punishment for rape Um, and a, a number of other ways to kind of speed up the process that they thought might then address the public's demand. And of course, as we know, this is something that's still with us to this day. There's always this tension among, you know, people want retribution, or other people might want understanding and rehabilitation. Where, where do our values lie, really? Do we want to see people punished? Do we want to see them, uh, again, given another chance, made better citizens, and so on? Eventually, what I think, what sort of happened, I think, is there was much discussion of these alternatives, too. And there were several cases that were prominent at the time, uh, not just of black people, black people accused of crimes, but whites also, where public impatience with the system was itself a kind of public, uh, an issue, basically. Like, why is this culprit still allowed to sit in, you know, enjoy a comfortable jail, whatever? You know, we hear this all the time, that. And when his victims suffered so greatly, you know. So ultimately, though, I think what the jurists decided was that there was enough um, that it would be very difficult to reform the justice system, get rid of all these kind of, what, presu- what all these sort of technicalities, that they were very much part of it. Um, and that some of the prejudices of the justice system were built so built in anyway that it was hard to sort of separate out Like, how would you start to do that to make it, it just seemed like a colossal undertaking. And I don't really think much was ever done about it, except it was, the fact that it was brought up and discussed was itself a reaction, I think, to this, to lynching and this sort of public impatience, as I said, with the sort of what seemed like the petty foggery of of the justice system.
0: I asked this question of someone who wrote a study of the Boston massacre and she loved it. She, she, uh, it was a fun question for her to answer. So I want to ask this question to you um, as a way of finding out what we don't know about this particular incident. Um, If there were a ring of surveillance cameras around Port Jervis that day, that captured everything that you could go back and look at the tape from any angle you wanted to, what would be the one piece of information that you would want those surveillance cameras to reveal so that you would have a full understanding of what happened that day?
1: Well, I think you, I mean, we would not need surveillance cameras for the lynching itself because that was very well documented. I think, as I mentioned before, I think there was a a mystery about what had, what had precipitated it. And that was something that the local press never really seemed. They themselves either didn't know or wouldn't go there. Uh, In other words, it's very frustrating as a historian to read articles written in the immediate aftermath of the lynching that end with the reporter saying, there's something going on here that we don't really know what it is at the end. And of course, a hundred years later, you're reading this and saying, would you please go out and find out what it is? And whether they're doing it because they don't want to, they want to protect the virtue of a young white woman who's recovering from this incident, or they know that something happened, that, that a man was lynched who was completely innocent, whether they knew that and just didn't want to come clean, we don't know. So for me, the surveillance camera would be on the incident that triggered all this. And to see what actually, was it was it staged? Was it actual? And I think we have to we have to agree that Lena McMahon may have been physically assaulted by a black man. Maybe it was a different person than the person who suffered for it. All those things are possible, and I think that's where the the cameras would tell us.
0: One of the things that I just thought was fascinating about your book is Lincoln's warning about the dangers of mob violence and that comes from the elijah lovejoy incident which is something we did another episode uh, about a biography of elijah lovejoy what was abraham lincoln's warning about the dangers of mob violence and how does it apply to us today as you just mentioned we had january 6th
1: well he his speech in 1838 as you mentioned it uh, came as a response to the killing of elijah lovejoy who was an abolitionist editor uh, in Southern Illinois, um, I mean, his warning, he gave an address to the I think the Young Men's Lyceum Group of Springfield, Illinois. Uh, basically, to me, it seemed like he was, war- he called it the mobocratic spirit. And he warned that the, this is when not just the killing of Elijah Lovejoy, but other uh, lethal lynchings were beginning to occur uh, in the South, partly because of the pressure of the abolition movement, which was also starting around the same time, and its pressure was being felt in the South. Uh, To me, my takeaway from it was he was warning that the thing about the mobocratic spirit is that it will turn on anyone eventually. In other words, you think maybe you're part of the mob today, but tomorrow you'll be the victim. In other words, that society will be corroded if you start going down that path, in that it will eventually reach everybody. And secondly, he also pointed out that. This would not be limited to the so- to the South that it could not be contained there that once started, it would spread as he put it, I think something like you know to the the sweltering south and to the snowy uh, you know terrain of New England or something like that that this would reach everywhere, so of course, those words were particularly germane to what occurred at Port Jervis
0: obviously, this is a in some ways a depressing topic in many ways a depressing topic. Um, and my apologies to our listeners for, for the sort of downcast nature of the events described here, but I do think it's an important, uh, very important topic for us to understand. So maybe in a little bit more of an upbeat, um, effort here to be a little bit more upbeat. Um, I want to ask you how you think America has improved in its understanding, um, of racialized violence. I think that there's
1: been a, uh, even in the time I began writing about these issues in the 1980s, and over that span of time, just in terms, as you say, there's still a very long way to go, but I think in terms of something like the 1619 Project, uh, Black Lives Matter uh, in the summer of 2020, for instance, in Port Jervis we saw, the Black Lives Matter movement had a march and a rally in the summer of 2020, which completely kind of woke up Port Jervis to the fact that there was this historic uh, tragedy that had occurred in, in Port Jervis that had never been really fully addressed, and that catalyzed a kind of reaction. Um, so I do think it is, and I've noticed, too, going into the South. I mean, when I began going there in the 1980s, people did not, a lot of people, did, white people would not, you could very hard to draw people out on these subjects, it's completely changed now. If you go, it's just been a generational shift. People are more curious about it. They feel more that they're willing to kind of learn that there's more they need to know about it. Uh, And so again, I'm sure you could get different answers from different people, but I think there has been something to feel that there is some uh, progress being made in that regard.
0: I was amazed that yesterday they unveiled the plaque to the victim in this case, yeah. in Port Jervis. Um, at the end of your introduction, you tell a brief but emotional story about a group of BLM demonstrators called the Friends of Robert Lewis right. who march through Port Jervis's streets. And they say that there is no hero in this story, that we have to be our own hero in confronting its legacy. Um, why did you find that group so inspirational and what does that plaque mean to you?
1: Well, I was just there yesterday, in fact. To oh, you were there for it. Great. Okay. Yeah. And it was, no, it really is. It's, it's very moving in a way. Uh, there were young people there who claimed, who came and said we didn't even know about this until we heard about it uh, from our classroom. And uh, there was an essay writing contest. People had come from all over Orange County, uh, black people and white people. Uh, it was very uplifting in a way to be part of something in which, you were, you know, in this day and age in particular, um, getting together with people, a diverse group of people who are doing something in concert together that feels like the right thing to do. And unveiling this plaque was, it was very special in a way when it w- was unveiled because it is the first public recognition really in Port Jervis of this incident uh, in a certain sense. And it will be, it's very prominently located And I think there was a kind of an upswelling of emotion uh, present when this occurred. And I, I, you know, we'll see, I hope it, it makes a difference, but I think there's no kind of, there's no turning back in a way this thing, this incident that was sort of treated with silence for many, many years now is no longer will be, it will be well known.
0: Hmm.
1: And I think that itself was a, a, a valuable objective.
0: What's it like to walk the streets of Port Jervis on a regular day when there's not a big crowd gathering for a dedication? What's the town like now? It's a
1: town like a lot of, like a lot of small towns in that area in, in, in the Northeast. Uh, it's still kind of recovering from the loss of its once industrial base, mm. being a rail hub. In other words, as of the mid-20th century, a lot of the industry left. Uh, the erie railroad departed and also an interstate highway came by and you so that literally the interstate highway comes over the local one of the prominent local cemeteries and so it means that people don't have to come through port jervis anymore unless you want to be there so it's it's not the town it was 130 years ago um, and that's something they're still working out there have been various efforts as you know a lot of small communities have to deal, have had to deal with this transformation. Some do better than others. They have film festivals or they find ways to, they make it into some like a theme park or an antique center or something. Porturvis never really did that. Um, And they're still at it somehow. The good thing about Porturvis is it's a very scenic location. It's uh, on the Delaware river, as you point out, it's in the Delaware water gap. Um, and on a, you say, what's it like to walk through? It's, it's a town, as you walk through it, you can tell that it's, economically, it's still struggling. But on a nice day, you can see it's also a very promising setting for a place to live, and it makes you, makes you hopeful for the future. What's it like to walk
0: past the spot where this happened?
1: Well, of course, it's very, it sort of, you know, gives you the chills in a way. And you can picture, as I mentioned, I, I mentioned this in the introduction of the book, because the town is a bit frozen in time in a way. Uh, A lot of the original architecture is the Victorian architecture of the houses, for instance, is still there. The streets, it's very easy to kind of feel like the time travel back a little bit. Um, Yes, there are gas stations and oil change places and things like that, but to a great extent, you can very much picture Lena's house is still there. the, you know, the old railroad station is still still around. So it's very easy to feel yourself transported back to it. All the dimensions and the distances are the same uh, and so on. So in that way, it's very powerful and there's no, no getting away from it, really, uh, which I think is makes it all the more important to have this kind of signage and public recognition. And I think these will be annual events. I mean, the may, the, there were three different town mayors there yesterday. Uh, State of Governor Hochul had authorized the signage being put up. So all these things, and plus there were many young people there, which was great. So there, the local young people are being informed about it and educated. So at this point, I think it'll, going forward, become a part of the town uh, legacy, basically. One thing I noticed that I thought was interesting was at the local train station, there's a new sort of a glass collage of local history which includes all the typical stuff you might expect like Revolutionary War, Civil War soldiers, but right there in the middle is a picture of Robert Lewis, the link. So in that, that alone, I thought was very moving that he has now joined, he is part of the local history. He's recognized, people will know that image and the name and I think that in itself is at least a step in the right direction.
0: Some authors love when I ask this. Some probably uh, don't love when I ask this. They don't tell me, but maybe they don't. Uh, I want to ask you what you think your next project might be.
1: Um, At this point, to be honest, I'm not just saying this. I don't (laughs) know, to be honest. Um, I I teach at the New School, and I find that that occupies me a lot. Um, I'm just going to sort of take it one thing at a time. I'm still right. As you know, this book just came out. I'm kind of still processing it in a way. As you know, it's interesting when you write a book because there's often things about it you don't really realize until it's published, whether it's talking to people like you or reading a review or whatever. So in a way, I'm still kind of getting out that ending the exit sort of process a bit. I don't know, something, I've written a number of books and I do, I love the work and I, I hopefully will land on something. At this point, uh, I'm just going to kind of wait and see. Maybe, you know, by this fall, something will materialize.
0: Philip Dre, the author of A Lynching at Port Jervis, Race and Reckoning in the Gilded Age. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Check out the book. Check out his website or the website for the publisher. Farrar, Strauss, and Drew at fsgbooks.com. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.